Would you open your Bibles this morning to the book of Daniel? We'll be in chapter 1. We started this series uh, last Sunday. The series is called Changing Kingdoms, Unchanging King. And I think today you'll even see, I hope you'll see even more why we, we chose to call the series that. If you are new with us, uh, we, we make it our practice to, to teach books of the Bible, uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Uh, we, want, we want to understand what, what God intended to say in the context that he intended to say it in. And that's the most reliable way to understand the context of Scripture is, is by studying it as a book among the 66 books and by remembering that though there are many stories in the Bible, there's just one story in the Bible. And that's the story of God manifesting himself in Jesus Christ and how he came to die and save sinners and, and adopt people who were formerly sinners as sons and daughters of the Most High God. So let's read this precious first chapter of Daniel together, uh, and then we will pray for God's help. Here's the, the inerrant, inspired, sufficient, authoritative word of God. Here is proof that God speaks to us today. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. And then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge and understanding, learning and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king? Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and he tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. 
Heavenly Father, would you take the word that we've just read from the pages of Scripture and write them upon our hearts? Oh, how we want to know you better, the sovereign King of kings, who rules not only over kings and kingdoms, but is also sovereignly gracious to his people to save and sustain them in the mission you've called us to until we arrive at our one true and final home. So please, Lord, help us see Jesus in the book of Daniel. Help us become like Jesus through the book of Daniel. And may you receive all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it's amazing how a song can imprint itself on your memory and on your emotions, depending on what you might be going through at the time that you heard that song. So that can involve romantic relationships and all these things. Well, one such song for me was, and I hope, guys, I don't lose my man card by telling you this. One such song for me was Somewhere Over the Rainbow from The Wizard of Oz. I can't remember the exact age I was, but I was young enough to still be excited about watching The Wizard of Oz. And I was old enough to know that my parents' marriage was rapidly imploding. Sadly, I grew up in the midst of family violence, seeing my mom with black eyes from my dad and watching my mom throw butcher knives and glassware and hot clothes iron at my dad. One night, it just so happened that The Wizard of Oz came on television at the same time that my dad and mom were having one of their world wars. I would never recommend that kids have their own television in their bedrooms, but for some reason, my parents put a TV in my room. And I got to tell you, at that point in my life, I was thankful they did. Because when they got into one of their huge, loud, and violent fights, I ran to my room, I closed the door, I sat inches away, from that black and white TV that only got three channels to the younger ones. I turned up the volume as loud as I could to try to escape what was going on just a few rooms away from me. And as my heart was breaking with fear over whether my parents would survive another battle, and with worry and insecurity about about really the picture of security in my life and any kid's life is the health of his parents' marriage. That's really, that's really the first taste of security a kid gets. And, and oh my goodness, I was, I, it's just like worry and insecurity over the destruction and breakdown of the home was just rampant in my life and heart. And that's when I first remember Dorothy singing Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Which of course leads Dorothy to the discovery that there truly is, you can say this with me, no place like home. You know, it's hard to sing songs of joy and live with passion and purpose when you feel like you have no home. It's already painful to not feel at home in this life, isn't it? That's already a painful thing that cuts. I mean, all of, I think all of us have some kind of taste of that, whether, whether you're just with it whether it's that you've, you've gone away to college for the first time and you're just missing home, whether it's, it's just, you know, I think of my growing up and, and, and with as bad as my parents' marriage was, they personally loved me and well and, and I miss things about home, about home as it was in Los Alamos, New Mexico. And, but when you, when you feel like you're not at home, it makes every other pain more painful somehow. Have you ever noticed that? When you're not in your true home, it just seems that everything else is a little harder. Everything else seems a little lonelier. And everything else is a bit sadder. It's hard to sing a joyful song when you are away from home. Well, Dorothy was not the first to discover this. In fact, I included this. So I know you've got a lot of notes today I've given you. I'm hoping that if my delivery of the sermon is terrible, that maybe at least the notes can help you when you go home. So... Um, in, the, in the notes I gave you, please look at the passage I've included in your notes this morning from Psalm 137, starting in verse 1. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. When we remembered home, when we remembered Zion, on the willows there we hung up our lyres. That was their musical instruments. 
For there are captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, and this is this sarcasm, right, of being a prisoner of war, and they're, and they're mocking. Essentially, they're saying, we know you have no reason to sing because your God is dead, and you really have no other home except with us. And they were saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. And then this verse, it's a, it's, it's a powerful verse, isn't it? Verse 4, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How can we live with joy and purpose and passion and obedience to God and filled with the Holy Spirit and filled with mission when we're living in a time and place where we really feel like we don't fit in? A place that tempts us to be satisfied by the things of the world. A place that threatens us if we don't comply. And a, a place that, that there's going to be, there, there's going to be, I, was gonna, uh, I won't even use the word. I was going to use the word theologically. I won't even use it. But there's going to be a price to pay. A place where our hearts are burdened with the sense that God just doesn't seem as close to me as he used to. Well, that, that feels like a long way from home, doesn't it? That makes you feel away from home. Uh, how about this? He doesn't feel as good to me as he used to. Or he just doesn't seem to be working as powerfully as he used to. Well, please look at this note that I put in your, in your notes. Guys, the Lord gave us the book of Daniel to teach exiles how to live on joyful mission for his glory when they're not living in their true home. The Lord gave us the book of Daniel to remind us that he is with us in our exile. That he is sovereign over all earthly kings and kingdoms. And that he's sovereignly gracious to save and sustain his people until he brings them into their true and everlasting home. Can we just whisper this together? Amen. Amen. So here's the main point for chapter one. God calls us to trust in his sovereign grace to not compromise our identity, our holiness, our mission while we live as exiles awaiting the coming of our true and everlasting home. In other words, this is how we sing the songs of Zion as exiles living in a strange and foreign land. So let's, let's get into this. Um, starting in, in verse 1, uh, verses 1 and 2, our first point is God gives us sovereign grace to trust Him in trials. Uh, so last week when we studied verses 1 and 2, so we're not going to go into, de into detail here, just as a reminder, we learned that it was not Nebuchadnezzar and his great military strategy and his, and, his, and his forces that were the ultimate reason that King Jehoiakim and the armies of Judah lost the battle. And the people of Jerusalem were taken into Babylon as prisoners of war. That's not what the scripture says, is it? We learn that it was God himself who gave Judah into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. To fulfill his promise, God had promised this, that he would, he would discipline his people. And so sometimes God's discipline can be pretty awkward and somewhat painful and not always pleasant at the time, is it? But it's a promise that he's going to discipline them for their ongoing disobedience to him by bringing about this extended time of trial and exile. If you, if you don't want to serve the Lord with, with just passion and with sub, your own submission and, and seeking first the kingdom of God, then God will allow you to experience what it's like. I mean, you're essentially saying, if I don't want to serve the Lord, let me see what the world is like. And God says, okay, go ahead. Try it. Try it. See what you think. Listen, this is in your notes. Why is it important to see that God gave Judah into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar rather than Nebuchadnezzar taking Judah into his hands? Why is that important? It's because even though it comes through a difficult trial, it strengthens our faith to know that God is very much in control even when life seems very much out of control. Because listen, listen, guys... If you want to fast forward to 2021, doesn't it seem like there's parts of life right now that are very much out of control? 
because of whoever's in the White House or whoever's your boss or sometimes even husbands and wives feel this way. Sometimes kids with their parents. Sometimes it just feels like, man, I'm just, just I'm, I'm, I'm living under the influence of other people and what their decisions are and it seems very, very out of control. It's hopeless if your hope is resting in who is sitting in the White House. We cannot be that. Those kind of people. That's why it's so, even though there's, there's some sobriety here, that God disciplines his people and loves his people. Um, there's, a, there's a sobriety here. There is hope that it's not Trump or Biden or Republican or Democrat that's in control. God gives what God gives. And I want you to see that in the book of Daniel. Listen, and if you need more proof here, the best proof to know that God is totally in control when life seems so totally out of control is to look at the cross of Christ. That was the one day in history when life seemed most out of control. Have you ever had your heart kind of broken because somebody you knew that was really a nice person and they were really, they were really godly and they were kind and, and yet they were constantly being attacked and, 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 and maligned and, and lied about because of their stand for the Lord and you felt horrible because of the way that they were treated. How would you have felt in Jerusalem on that day if you were to tiptoe outside the gates of Jerusalem and to see the sinless Son of God who never disobeyed God, kept every commandment both with His hands and with His heart and He's hanging there as an innocent one bearing the guilt of our sins. Or wouldn't that feel like, listen, if somebody like that is going to be killed like that, what hope do any of us have? I mean, wouldn't that be easy to interpret it that way? It's like, wait a minute, this, is, this man was the best of the best. And so if this is what Rome can do, or if this is what religious hypocrisy could do, if this is what, if this is what hypocritical scaredy cat followers would allow, I mean, how could God be in control of this? And then he breathes his last and they bury him. And for two long days, those were dark days, weren't they? A feeling like, where's the God of all power? He, he healed the leper. He calmed the storms. And it's silent and it's dark. And everything seems so out of control until the third day. And the third day, he rises from the dead. And he proves to us that he takes the worst day in history to be the best day in history for whoever will trust him as Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. So it's also important for them to know that God allowed Nebuchadnezzar to take the articles that, were, that represented his presence in the temple in Jerusalem. They, they, they weren't his presence, they just represented his presence in Jerusalem. And they reminded his people that God is with us. We may be going into exile, but you know what? God came with us. <laughs> he will never leave us or forsake us. And that's important to know when you're living as foreigners in a strange land, right? Living as exiles. Listen, I think it's important to know, just I, I still want you to, to understand, as, I, don't want, I don't want you to lose the big storyline, the big picture of Daniel as we go through the chapters themselves. So I hope this will help you see that God is sovereign and sovereignly gracious over all things. So I, I want you to see how, how God has inspired this book, even in its structure. Okay, Daniel was written with a structure that is to remind us that God is sovereign over all earthly kings and kingdoms and that God is sovereignly gracious to his people. And you really see that in chapters 2 through 7. It's interesting um, that it's, it, um, the theologians, the smart guys, they, they call this a, a, a chiastic structure. And it looks something like this. Chapter 1 just begins with, uh, it's really a theme, it's really a foundation book for the entire book. And it's essentially saying, and this is in your notes, because God is the sovereign king over all, Daniel resolves not to defile himself. 
by being conformed to the desires and ways of Babylon and its kings. Instead, he seeks to glorify the one true and sovereign God and influence Babylon with his godliness more than Babylon influenced him with its ungodliness. So there's kind of a little summary of what we're going to study in more detail today. But then look at this. This is very interesting. Chapters 2 and 7 have similar themes. They are visions of four nations, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And they're going to be dethroned and replaced by a sovereign king of kings. We're going to learn that we're going to see the phrase, the son of man who receives all glory, the rock that either makes men stumble or the rock that men build their lives upon. And, And his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom which is eternally more powerful than any king or kingdom on earth. These chapters are to give your heart assurance that the future belongs to the sovereign, unchanging king of kings. So don't worry about tomorrow. That's what, that's what chapters 2 and 7, or, or 2 and 7 tell us. Chapters 3 and 6, so look, we're kind of, see that's what this chiastic kind of thing is talking about. So 2 and 7 are similar. Now 3 and 6 have similar themes. And look at the, your notes here. They show how God gives grace for his people to not submit to the idols of this world and not fear the threats of persecution. In both chapters, you see God's sovereign grace rescuing his people through their persecution He doesn't save them from persecution. He saves them through persecution, whether it be in a fiery furnace or a den of lions. In both cases, the kings that were ruling during those times send out a letter telling the nations to worship the God of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because he alone can save. (laughs) How do you like that? The pagans are preaching the gospel. I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing why we have to stand up in the public spheres of life. We're not to run away, you guys. We, but we, we've got to stay gospel-centered, and that's what, that's what we're going to learn in Daniel. I think there's going to be so much great stuff to teach us how to not compromise, and, and yet, I love this, this phrase, to seek, to stand. We're gonna, we want to stand against the culture, but it's for the culture, Do you see what I'm saying? We want to stand against the culture to win the culture. We want to stand against the persecutors to win the persecutors. Can you imagine? What if we would have said, oh, forget about Saul. Man, we don't like terrorists. Do you realize that one of the most influential Christians of all time was once a terrorist? Where would, oh my goodness, reel it in, Billy, reel it in. Here we go. Okay, so these chapters, so chapters three and six, give us assurance that God is present with us right now. Isn't that what we really learn in the furnace and in the lion's den? And he rescues his people through his sovereign grace. Well, that, re- that brings you to four and five, which is the, really a primary focus to understanding the whole book. In spite of all his power and accomplishments, Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4 is humbled to the point of eating grass like an ox. And Belshazzar's arrogance in throwing a drunken party and bringing out the vessels of God from the temple in Jerusalem to mock them and exalt himself over the living God. Remember, he sees the writing on the wall, doesn't he? He sees the writing on the wall. that His life and kingdom will soon be demanded from him. And one phrase, you're going to hear, repetition is important in Scripture to understand context. One phrase repeated four times in these chapters. The Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone He wishes. See, this gives us assurance that God is is sovereignly ruling over all kings, governments, nations, employers, economies, education, coaches. I don't know where where else you want to apply that to. But he's sovereignly ruling all people through the one true king of kings. You know, you could summarize those chapters by essentially saying this. Jesus is Lord. Okay, so let me get personal real quick. Where are you struggling to to live an uncompromising life before the Lord? Where are you being tempted to give in to your friends and what they're calling you to do, 
your company and what, what it's calling you to do. There is something so spiritually health-giving by just remembering Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. He deserves all of my life, all of my praise, all of my obedience because of what he's done for me. And he rules over every king and kingdom and boss and husband and parent. And Jesus is Lord. And then chapters 8 through 12, that's where a lot of times people check out <laughs> because it's like all these visions and apocalyptic kind of stuff. You know, let's, let's just, I hope this will help you. You know what they tell us? So chapter 7 is really the announcement of the, of the coming of Jesus Christ. And then chapters 8 through 12 tell us that even though God's kingdom has already come in Christ, we are not yet with him in our true and everlasting home. And during this time, we're to live on in mission for him and for his glory, even though it may require some suffering and persecution. His sovereign grace will empower and sustain our faith until he brings us all the way home. So can I give you a homework assignment? Can I ask you this week, I asked you to do this last week, but would you do that this week? Would you, this will be so good for your souls. Guys, I'm not doing this to like, this is just to be good for your souls. Would you read Daniel 1 through 12 again and go back to this little outline? Because I think it's, I think you're going to start going, oh my goodness, God is the most high, is sovereign over kings and kingdoms and sovereignly gracious to sustain and empower my faith until he comes again. I think that's what's... Well, I hope that's what happens for you. Okay, I hope that's what happens. Okay, so this is how we sing the Lord's song as exiles in a foreign land. And that's why Daniel resolves to not defile himself with the seductions of Babylon or not compromise his faith because of the persecutions of Babylon. The Most High God is sovereign over all and gracious toward His people in Christ. Even though for now you might have to suffer a while as you live on mission for Him before His eternal kingdom is established. So here we go. Let's break this down. Point number two. God gives us sovereign grace to not compromise our identity and calling when tempted or threatened. So tempted by something good that maybe we... we, we you know how it's so easy to take something good and push God outside of that and make something good something ultimate? I think Calvin said that Christian sins, Christian sins so often are not that they want a good thing, but that they want a good thing too much. And so I, that's what the world does, y'all. That's, that's how the world tempts you. It doesn't always just say, hey, come over to this corner and let's, let's do crack together. It's, 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 it's just saying, hey, wouldn't it be great to be married? Yeah, it's a good thing, isn't it? But it never was meant to rule over your heart. You're never to want it more than you wanted the Lord. You see what I'm saying? Just a, kind of an illustration there. So he, 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 this, God gives us sovereign grace to not compromise when tempted, but also not compromise when threatened. We need, we need grace for both, don't we? So this points us to Jesus. Jesus was the one who was first despised and rejected and defeated, but he didn't defile himself. And instead, he was willing to be defiled with our sin debt and punished with the wrath we deserved and ultimately being exalted to the right hand of God. That's, that's where this is going to take us. And Daniel points us to that. But, but in this passage, in verses 3 through 16, listen, you got to remember, for conquering kings, the battle isn't over just because you won a military war. The, 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 the bombs may have stopped because Jerusalem was defeated militarily. I, I told the young people this, you know, and that's another thing, for if you, just so you'll know that our elders are involved with our youth ministry um, so Hugh was at, at, the, at our youth meeting, um, Alan was out of town, Eric was at our youth meeting, um, and I was sharing with our kids this past Friday night, the bombs may have stopped dropping, but you know, th th there's another B word though, they're, they're not just after scaring you with their bombs, they're after your brains, they're after what you believe, 
And so that's what's going on here. There's another war that's going on that really is probably more fearful than the war with bombs and bullets. For believers, we should see it as a spiritual war because final victory is found in conforming people to the image of the world. That's what they're after. They're not just after making, bloodying the streets with you. They're after assimilating you. That's the biggest victory. It's essentially this. We own you. And I, guys, I hate to say it, but it just seems like in our political environment, if you really listen to some of the words coming out of politicians' mouths, it just is not hard to see and hear them saying, we own you. True victory for the world is erasing their true God-given identity and their purpose and either deceive or force them into finding an alternate and broken identity in the world. Uh, this really puts an accentuation mark on the Babylonian victory. You no longer belong to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You belong to me, Nebuchadnezzar. Your identity, your food, your security, your prosperity, your education, it all comes from me. And notice where they start this war of assimilation. The young people. So again, parents, I beg you, the dearest place on earth on Sundays for your children is right here. Or in any other gospel center. I'm not saying us. I mean, we've got plenty of warts and we fall short in 10 bazillion ways. Let me keep going. I think this will make more sense. Do you know what, and I told, this is where I was telling you guys Friday night. When it says youth, it's talking about anywhere from 6th grade to 18 years old. This should inspire our parenting. To, am I equipping my kids? Because essentially, let's say Daniel was an eighth grader. An eighth grader has experienced the Lord's love and has been dis discipled in his word enough to stand against Hitler. Or Nebuchadnezzar in this context. And yet we send our kids off to, oh, let's, let's entertain you with Christianity. Let's Nebuchadnezzar puts them into a program of an intense Babylonian identity training. That's why Vodi Bakum has said something like this. We, we should not send our children to Caesar and be surprised when they come back as Romans. One of the best ways to conquer people. Anyway, let me make sure you understand what I'm saying there. You know, sometimes people will ask me, is, is Sovereign Grace Church a homeschooling church? And I will say this. You know, can I, let me tell you what. Sovereign Grace is a gospel-centered church. Okay. Gospel-centered church. Every parent should be homeschooling their children in regard to discipleship. Whether that means your kids are in public school or private school or in a traditional homeschool setting. Every parent, regardless of, of the context that you're pursuing education for your kids in, every parent is to be a homeschooling parent, ultimately, right? A gospel-centered, gospel-training, gospel-declaring kind of parent. And, and we'll actually get a little bit surprised here because of how God uses secular education with a Godward view, a God-centered view of it, to actually influence the world. And that'll be the end. That's where we'll finish today. So be, be ready for that. Hopefully you have already seen that. Well, how do, you, how do you assimilate the next generation? How do you conquer them? I, I, I just put it like this, separate and saturate. Separate and saturate. Separate them from family and their family of believers. Saturate them in a Babylonian worldview and tell them what they are supposed to think about history, theology, morality, sexuality, and what they should value in life. Nebuchadnezzar gives him essentially a full scholarship to the University of Babylon to accomplish this. 
So they received new names. So it wasn't just, it wasn't just this, this education that he was going to force down their throats. They received new names in place of their Hebrew names. In Hebrew, Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah means God has been gracious. Mishael means who is like the Lord. And Azariah means God is our help. Wow, aren't those great names? Makes me want to go back and rename my kids. I, no, I'm kidding. Guys, no. I don't think my kids listen to my preaching now that they're out of the home. But um, well, maybe they do sometimes. They, they've got world-class preachers they can listen to. Anyway. Um, Nebuchadnezzar didn't want to risk for even their names to point them back to the one true God. He wanted them to know that their God was dead and they were to serve him and his God. So he calls them Belteshazzar in honor of the God Bab, in honor of the God Bel. And it's calling out for Bel to protect the king. Shadrach was, was uh, in honor of Aku, meaning that he was ruled or commanded by the false god Aku. Meshach was in honor of Aku as well, meaning who is like Aku? And Abednego was in honor of Nego, meaning he's the servant of Nego. You guys, God is our loving and wise creator and redeemer is to be the only place where we're to find our true identity. The Bible is filled with identity statements that teach us that God in his goodness assigns identity. He makes them biologically male and biologically female, and that is very good. He makes them children or parents. Those are great identities. Husband, wife, son, daughter, children of God, disciples of Christ. The church is one of the expressions of our identity. Elect exiles, Christians, new creatures in Christ Jesus, dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. This is our identity. The world wants us to reject our God-given identity that has Him at the center and exists for His glory and replace it with a more fluid, here's the word, right? A fluid identity that is rooted in our emotions and desires for acceptance and approval and applause and personal glory. I'll put this in your notes. Wherever you look for your identity will ultimately rule your heart. And dictate how you choose to live and interpret your life. Because of sin, we don't always make good decisions because of the facts in front of us. But because of our fallen interpretation of the facts. Your identity will rule your heart, your thinking, your emotions, and your choices. It will rule what you stand up for or bow down to. Oh my goodness, parents, I think that's, one, that's a huge thing in 18 years of, of having your kids in your home. That's such a huge lesson, daily lesson. Where are my kids finding their identity? If it's in Christ, you're going to see spiritual health growing in them and, and a God-centered worldview and an other-centered way of looking at life and a desire to seek first the kingdom and, and not sin and, and lay down their lives as sacrifices for other people. But, but if they look for their identity in, in what the world says they're supposed to be, the, that the world is assigning their identity, that identity is in popularity or being the best on the baseball team or best in the classroom or, oh my goodness, whatever they're finding their identity in is going to rule over their hearts. It just, listen, you know that as adults. Haven't we experienced that? Haven't us as adults been slaves to so many other things besides the Lord? We, we, we were seeking our identity in all these other things and they dominate over us. And they affect what we stand up for and what we bow down to. But it's not just trying to make them Babylonians through a pagan worldview and a new identity. It's also seeking to make you dependent upon the government for your needs, for your prosperity, for your morals, and ethics. Listen, I'm 61 years old. I never in my life would have dreamed that the Supreme Court was asked to define marriage. Oh my God. If, 
It seeks to motivate you by guilt. It wants to make you feel indebted to the king for what he's done for you so you will do his will. It seeks to create an emotional loyalty to the king. And that's where the issue of eating and eating and drinking the king's food comes into play. In verse 8, Daniel resolved to not defile himself with the king's food or the king's wine. He resolved to not be conformed to this world. Listen, guys, Daniel did not spontaneously make this resolution at the moment he was tempted. That would be like this. That'd be like saying, you know, I would like to, I'd like to stay a virgin until I'm married. You know, I'd like to just save, my, save that for, for uh, in honor of the Lord and to honor my future spouse. I'd like to do that. Well, you know what? If you're waiting, and this is a little bit, I'm sorry to be a little crass, but if you're waiting until you're sitting in the back seat with this gorgeous girl and her perfume is filling your nostrils and it's just a softly lit moment with some sweet music playing. <laughs> somebody, somebody said, I don't know if you could hear that. Somebody said, Shh. <laughs> Oh, thanks, Terry. Um, those resolutions need to be made like in, in lighting like this, right? <laughs> Around other people in the most unromantic moments. Those, that's where you make resolutions, right? So Daniel didn't spontaneously, I mean, you guys, how many people are thinking, I, I'm not seeking the Lord. I'm, I'm, I'm really half-hearted. I'm lukewarm in a lot of my Christianity. But oh, when, when I'm called to bow down to the idol, oh, I'm going to stand up for the Lord. You think you're going to stand up then? When you're not standing up now? Daniel didn't spontaneously make that resolution. He made that resolution before the face of God in light of the scriptures. One of my concerns about the body of Christ in the United States is that there's so many professing Christians who really have no Christian conviction. Oh, I'm a Christian, but you don't see any conviction. You don't see hearts resolute to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. There's Bible readers without biblical conviction, without biblical resolution, hearers of the word, but not doers of the word, deceiving themselves. People who think that agreeing with the Bible is the same as obeying it? What was it about the king's food that was defiling? Was it sacrifice to idols? I don't know. Maybe it could have been. Was it likely that grains and... But, but, but here's the problem with that. The, in that. In that pagan system, the grains, the vegetables would have been sacrificed too. So that probably wasn't it. Was it keeping with Old Testament dietary laws? That might have played a part. But the, but the wine, that would have not been included. So... Maybe it's their desire to identify with so many of their people who were starving or in poverty and they didn't want to eat well. That's, that's what all the different scholars have put forward. But really none of that would explain the defilement. Whatever the reason was, there was something about eating the king's food that would ad- identify them as being conformed more to the world of King Nebuchadnezzar than they were conformed as the servants of the Most High God. I think it maybe was meant to be a little bit vague, to be more broadly applicable to all of us. Because some of these things were not, it's, it's like if you really dig down, these things were not evil in themselves. I think it comes down to your walk with Jesus. What things are maybe, maybe okay for someone else to do, but you need to kind of steer clear of them. What, what things might be okay in themselves but, boy, your experience of doing that has just led to the defiling yourself. Um, and maybe that's why it's a little bit more vague. It was just another reminder, though, of how the fallen world seeks to conform us to its image through threats if you don't comply or promises of a good life if you do comply. The goal was to get them to depend upon the king rather than the Lord. So there's a good application question. In the areas where you're struggling, who are you depending on? Who are you depending on? 
And it could be something that's very good, but it's really taking the place of your heart depending most on Jesus, right? In our marriage, I've depended on Jan. I've, I've sometimes, I've, I've put, I've expected more from Jan than I've expected from the Lord. Who are you depending on? And also listen, to serve in the government of Babylon was not evil all the time. <laughs> and it was not okay to submit to that government all the time either. I've got one of, one of my sons, he's, he's got two heroes. One is William Wilberforce and one is Abraham Kuyper. And sometimes my son talks about, Dad, I wonder sometimes if, if the Lord wouldn't have me uh, play a part in governmental service. And I just, I'd ask him, you mean like in this, admin, in, I'm not, so I'm not going to, because you could be anti-Trump or anti-Biden. So in, in whatever blank administration you want to be. And then what's funny, guys, was your kids get older, they get biblically, they're biblical smart Alex. Um, and he, he said, Dad, um, uh, didn't Daniel serve in Nebuchadnezzar's administration? Shut up. You see, this is where you guys, it takes a walk with Jesus. God has a calling on your life. And, and for some of us, it's not to run away from being involved in, in the public sphere. And not, for none of us to run away from that in, in, in personal capacities. But this was a really, really, really bad, pagan, hard, conquering, proud, brutal king. This was a king who oppressed them, destroyed their homes and temple, brought them as prisoners of a war, made them walk 500 miles from Jerusalem to Babylon. And even though they were forced into the king's service, the Bible gives no indication that seeking to serve the one ruling over you with godliness and excellence and as a witness of your faith was wrong. So I guess in that sense, you could feel like you're called into the Trump administration, not because you are Trump 24-7, all Trump all the time, or the Biden administration, because you're all Biden all the time. Because you're a servant of the Most High God. And you're there to be a light in the darkness. And to take a stand against the world for the sake of the world. It takes a walk with Jesus to know how to do that, doesn't it? And, and here's where, where, where we're coming out with this. Well, look at Jeremiah 29, 4-7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. Look at this verse, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For, in its, in, for it's in its welfare, you will find your welfare. We're to be winning people everywhere we can find them. They wanted to honor God with excellent work and witness, but they also were willing to refuse to do anything that would compromise their obedience to God. So in your notes, like Daniel, we must resolve to not compromise our identity, our godliness, or mission, by knowing that God is sovereign over all and is sovereignly gracious to his people. And as such, when necessary, we take a stand against the culture when needed in pursuit of winning the culture for the glory of God. And so what happens in verse 8? Daniel asked the chief of the eunuchs to not defile. He doesn't want to defile himself with the king's food. And looky, 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 verse 9, and God gave. <laughs> I just love this. Three times in chapter 1, God gave. God gave grace. This is really what we're going after. God gave sovereign grace to live out his convictions for the glory of God and for the godly good of those with him. You know, sometimes there are people that say, why don't I experience the power of God? Well, it's because mainly you sit on your couch in your living room. I mean, that's really kind of what a lot of the reason why. God, you, you, you go from this book, from, from Genesis to Revelation, and so often when you're experiencing the manifest presence and power and glory of God, it's because the 
the, the scripture you read became the scriptures you were convicted by. And they, 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 you, they turned into resolutions of wanting to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And it, and it meant you're willing to lay down your life as a witness for Christ. Whether it's with your friendship group, whether it's with your bosses. I don't know who it's with. But isn't it interesting that as Daniel moves in resolute devotion to the king of kings... God gives sovereign grace, right? I mean, that's how he manifests his presence. By living for what he died for. So God gave Daniel sovereign grace to live out these convictions for the glory of God. And the godly good of the people he was serving. So in verse 9, in spite of doing what the kings were demanding, God was giving. It didn't matter what Nebuchadnezzar was demanding. God was giving. And God was in control, and grace came through an unexpected source, the chief of the king's eunuchs. God's going to give grace through a pagan boss. <laughs> That's obnoxious. That, that, ha ha. I'm sorry. That's obnoxious. To all the pagan bosses who might be watching this morning. <sighs> but sometimes we don't think the Lord can move, do we? He holds the hearts of kings, guys. And he turns those hearts however he wishes. And he, God gave grace to Daniel through the compassion of this most unexpected supervisor in his life. But he was afraid of how helping Daniel might hurt himself with the king. And if those four Hebrew teenagers began to look weaker and unhealthy and less productive, the blame could fall on him. Isn't it interesting that Daniel was concerned about him? <laughs> Isn't that great? Daniel cared about his pagan boss. So God gave Daniel wisdom and direction to approach his immediate supervisor. There'd already been, a, a, you know, there's already been an expression that his, his department head, if you want to call him that, had compassion on his concerns. So he approaches his immediate supervisor. And God gave grace for the steward to agree to Daniel's request, reminding us that God turns the hearts of any leader, and he turned the heart of this steward. Daniel just doesn't take a stand in asking for vegetables. He was taking a stand that would ultimately be good for the glory of God and the godly good of the steward. Because remember what they're saying, listen, dude, if I do what you say, my head is off. Daniel cares about that. Do you care about how your boss looks to his boss? I mean, we should, see, there's, there's, a, there's a Christian witness that I don't know that we've tapped enough into to watch God do wonderfully supernatural things in our workplaces. So, so he takes this stand, not to just not defile himself, but it's actually saying, listen, if I live for the glory of my God, it'll be good for you. It'll be good for you. So test us. See if the plan doesn't actually help us excel in our health and strength and productivity. And if it doesn't, do what you need to do. And God's grace provided what they needed through those vegetables to prove that God was alive and well and supplying sovereign grace to his people. And after 10 days, Daniel and his friends were stronger, more healthy. And the text literally says, fatter. What? You mean they, they got fatter eating broccoli and not beef? It was a miracle. Listen, that's really what's happening here. Just so you know. So I've got a wonderful doctor named Dr. Phil. Not the guy on TV. Um, someone you know very well. Precious, precious man. And my health is a mess. And so Phil's been working with me and trying to help me. And, and Phil put me on a plant-based diet that has actually helped me lose weight. All right. I could, I, you know, I could use a little encouragement in that. You know? Yeah, Billy, way to go. Um, yeah. Oh, thanks, babe. You can. Oh, my wife is saying, oh, quit talking about your diet and finish the sermon. Um, anyway, here's the point with that. So this isn't recommending a vegan diet or vegetarian diet. This wasn't about diet. This was about devotion. And and this was about at that time, if you were going to serve in, in the, the ruling class, you, you had a little bit of a Buddha belly. And these vegetables made them fatter. So, 
So don't go running out going, I knew we should have been on that Daniel diet. You know, so it's, about, it's about the devotion that God would provide their needs, not Nebuchadnezzar, that God would provide. Just these last two, I'm going to go through quickly. God gives us sovereign grace through education and vocation in the world without becoming like the world. And you see that in verse 17, God gave them learning and skill. He made them masters of the Babylonian literature and science without becoming Babylonians, right? So that's, that's why we don't want to just curse things. You know, Christians are just so good at you know, curse this. If you're not doing my, it, the way I do it and all this kind of stuff. Our role is to disciple our children so that wherever they go, they, they, they may live in Babylon, but they don't become Babylonians. And that they can get the most out of education. And, and they can take strong stands for Christ in their vocation. And that's what we see in verses 17 through 20. No compromise of faith or identity or godliness or mission. And it also, kids, doesn't mean that if you just read the Bible, you're going you're gonna to get the best grades in the class. That's not what it means either. It just means that God will supply what you need to be his witness for Christ wherever you are. And the last one is this. God gives us sovereign grace to sustain our faith until the end. And it's really verse 21. This is where, you know, the name of the series is Changing Kings, Unchanging Kingdom. Changing Kingdoms, Unchanging King. So we're going to see, going through Daniel, we're going to go through King Nebuchadnezzar. We're going to go through King Belshazzar. We're going to go through King Darius. And we're going to go through King Cyrus. And you know why? Because Daniel did. God's sovereign grace sustained Daniel's faith and identity and holiness and mission to serve in the administration of four pagan kings and outlive them all. Because Jesus is king over all. Talk about bloom where you're planted, huh? Wow. Daniel had a full and fruitful and God-honoring and world-influencing life, even though he never made it back to Jerusalem. He found his home where the Lord planted him, doing the Lord's work there. So I worked really hard on knowing how to end this because I just want you to see, we're not going to moralize Daniel. We're not going to mother goose Daniel. That just didn't sound right. <laughs> So I just wrote this out so you could read this with me as our conclusion. Or follow me when I read it. So how do we end this chapter? Do we dare to be a Daniel? Well, if so, I won't speak for y'all, but if so, I don't have a chance. I cannot be Daniel out of my own wisdom and strength. I'm already a failure. I've already failed. I've already compromised. I've already defiled myself. And I'm kind of guessing I'm not the only one. The gospel is not that God is faithful to those who are faithful to him. It's not that we are saved by trying to live an undefiled life. Daniel is a great example for us, but his life is mainly to point us to the one who was more than just a great example. This chapter is teaching us that what we need, that we need what Daniel needed, the gift of sovereign grace. God gives sovereign grace to help us trust Him in trials. God gives sovereign grace to empower, um, to empower us to not compromise our faith, our identity, our godliness and mission. God gives sovereign grace for education and vocation in the world without becoming like the world. God gives sovereign grace to sustain our faith and Daniel's faith and our faith and our obedience until the end. Most importantly, by God's sovereign grace, God gave His only begotten Son. That whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. Oh, you guys, Jesus is the better Daniel. Jesus came as an exile living in a foreign land. Jesus endured far greater temptation and suffering than Daniel. And He did so without being defiled. 
Jesus does for us what Daniel could never do for us. Jesus resolved to live a holy life, a life of no compromise, a life of taking a stand against the world to win the world, a life that would not be defiled by his own sin. But Jesus went further, and aren't we glad? He laid down his life and allowed himself to be counted as defiled by our sin and punished for that sin on the cross. And when Jesus rose again, he not only saved us from our sin and the judgment it deserved, but he also enables us to live lives undefiled, uncompromising, holy, and on mission for him by his sovereign grace. And the church said, Amen. Amen. Would you stand and let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the book of Daniel. Thank you so much about all that we're going to learn about Jesus in the book of Daniel. Oh, Lord. God, there's so many similarities between the times we're living in and the times that uh, Daniel lived in. But there's really one huge difference. Jesus hadn't come yet when Daniel was living. And we should have even more hope because Christ has come, was crucified, buried, and on the third day rose again to give us a new identity, a holiness we could have never achieved on our own, and a mission to live for what he died for. So God, would you use this book to more fully conform us to your image so that we're not conformed to the image of the world. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen.